As Corey said, our speaker of the hour is Michael Height. Michael is the, um, his official title, Vice President of Operations here at the Bear Valley Bible Institute. He is also one of our uh, instructors here at the Institute. He also serves as one of the shepherds of this congregation. Uh, I have grown to love Michael very much in the last uh, several years working with Bear Valley, even before we moved back, but especially in the last uh, 11 years that we have been back working with the school here. Um, the, as Corey said in his prayer, uh, when I think of Michael Hyde, I think of someone who loves God's Word. He loves to learn. He is very much a learner. And uh, just you can see the joy uh, in him when he learns something new. And uh, we've often talked about one of the coolest things about working here is everyone's office door is open and you all of a sudden you hear someone say, this is so cool. And then you hear footsteps coming down to share with everybody else what new little nugget we found in Scripture. And, and uh, that, that really is a joy. And it's a joy working, uh, working with Michael. And so I don't want to take any more of his time. I want you to come and preach the word to us, brother. Preach the word. You know, when we originally broke out topics for this lectureship, Psalm 119 was given three sessions, and I signed up for one of them. And about a month later, Denny came to me and he said, you got the whole thing. And I was like, oh, okay, well, are the three sessions back to back to back? He said, no, no, you've got all of it in one session. <laughs> so make sure your trade tables are in their full upright in locked position and that your seatbelt is strapped tightly around your waist because we've got 176 verses to cover in 40 minutes. <laughs> you know, it doesn't take much observation to recognize that today's culture, even within the Lord's church, our desire and our love for God's word is waning. The you-do-you culture that we live in is teaching us that out of our own experiences and understanding and knowledge, we decide how things are. We look to God for direction, but we make a number of statements that really reflect our view of God and who He is and what He is when we say things like, my God would never fill in the blank. Or, I just don't think God would whatever. Or even worse, I know what that verse says, but I just don't believe that. It really shows that we have placed the crown on our own head and we've taken it off of God's in many respects. We elevate our own thinking and our own reasoning and our own logic above God's commands and His Word. And Psalm 119 stands as an anthem for the Word of God. I find it interesting that he professes in this text how much he loves the law of God. Now, that seems strange to us in a modern context at some level. We love law. Do we love law as a culture? How many of you drove the speed limit on the way to here? We don't like law. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like being restricted, right? We want to be left alone to our own devices, and yet the psalmist describes the law of God and says how much he loves it. And I, I'm really actually thankful that Denny gave me the entire psalm to deal with because I think if I had only taken a third of it, I would have missed the point. 
And it was in my study of the whole thing that I came to understand and to ask myself the question, why does this man love the law of God so much? Which I think is what he wants us to ask as well. Why should we love God's word? Why is he so passionate about what God has to say? Psalm 119 is going to represent a man who has put God's word at the forefront of his thinking rather than himself. His praise for God is through what the word has revealed to him about God. And his very life is revived, verse 50, by the word. He's redeemed, verse 154, by what he reads. In God's precepts and testimonies, he has found a clear picture of not only who the Lord is, but who he is in reference to his God. And I think that is the message of this psalm. It's interesting. We we really will not have the time to look up even a number of the, the verses specifically. I'll give you references to a lot of them. Uh, the, the book will give you much more detail and I would encourage you to study this on your own later. But Psalm 119, he, he talks about his delight in the Word of God seven times. And I think this is a reference back to Psalm 1 verse 2 he delights in God's word do you I think that's a fair question do we delight I mean we delight in things like ice cream right and things that give us joy but do we really delight in God's word are we hungry for it do we seek it are, are we chasing it do we want it Or do we want so many other things? The writer says he treasures the Word of God, verse 11, in his heart so that he might not sin against his God. But what do we treasure? We typically don't treasure time with God's Word. Now, I would argue that I'm I'm preaching a little bit to the choir because it is five minutes after two on a Sunday afternoon in a room that is warm and you're here to hear lessons from God's Word. So I would argue that, that you love God's Word at some level because you're here. But I talk to preachers and elders all over our brotherhood who bemoan the difficulty of getting members of the Lord's Church to commit to studying God's Word. To even come to the building for Bible class. To come for worship. To come to, to hear what God has to say. And that's so such contrast in comparison to what we read in Psalm 119. He treasures God's Word. We treasure so many other things. He's going to say 14 times that he loves God's Word. And I think there's an interesting contrast here because there's a a movement. I think it's a small movement within our brotherhood, but I hear it pretty frequently. We've got to stop loving the Bible and start loving Jesus. Has anybody else heard something along those ideas? You know, he says throughout this book how much he loves God's Word and there's not a single verse in Psalm 119 of the 160, uh, 176 verses, there's not a one that says he loves God. He says he loves the Word of God. Why? Because it's in the Word of God that he comes to know who God actually even is. And that's why he treasures it so much. And I think that's what we're missing. We think we can come to know God separate from His Word. Brothers and sisters, we can't. And we've got to stop thinking that we can. We want to just meditate on God 
and come to know Him when the writer, the psalmist here is going to say, I meditate on His Word because it's through that Word that I come to know my God. And that's what's missing, isn't it? Now it's interesting, the author of this particular psalm is unattributed. We don't know who wrote it. I think there are, there are some strong and compelling reasons to believe that David is, is most likely the author. Verse 46 talks about the fact that he speaks your testimonies before kings. Chapter, uh, uh, chapter. Uh, I keep thinking of this as one whole book, and well, I'll explain why in a minute, but uh, verse 23 and verse 161 talks about his, those that oppose him are described as rulers and princes, and I think that probably fits David. He's referred to he, he refers to himself as your servant, which is definitely a Davidic kind of phrase. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, later on, over and over throughout this psalm. So I think there's reason to believe that it's David, but it doesn't matter, does it? He he doesn't particularly care to describe who he is. He describes what he loves and he describes his relationship with God and he describes the relevance of God's word in his life. The structure of the book is very interesting and and very unique in Scripture. At 176 verses, this book, this chapter, is longer than 31 books that are contained in our Bibles. Almost half of the books of Scripture are shorter in length than this one chapter. One of the reasons why we're not going to go verse by verse. (laughs) It's an acrostic, and acrostic psalms, if you're familiar with that, each letter of each strophe or stanza, we would kind of call them stanzas, they're technically called strophes, but there are 22 strophes. Each one contains eight verses, and each one of those verses in each stanza begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it begins with Aleph and goes all the way through. Why? Well, we really don't know. There's only nine psalms that are constructed this way uh, in total. This is the longest by far and the most complete. Uh, Many don't even get all the way through the alphabet. Some argue that it was easier for them to memorize uh, these psalms when they were in this acrostic style. Uh, Some folks believe that it's kind of the idea that we have of they were trying to cover a topic from A to Z, kind of, you know, this completeness uh, of dealing with the acrostic Um, I think it was probably just mostly a poetic form uh, that they were using. And some have tried to take each of these 22 strophes or stanzas, these eight verse groups, and tried to assign a particular meaning to each one. If you buy the lectureship book, I've given you one uh, commentator's list of each of the 22 stanzas and what he believes each one is talking about specifically. I found in my personal study that that doesn't really work. If you've looked at this psalm and tried to break down each eight verse passage, you'll notice that it's very repetitive. There's no doubt about it. He says over and over again the same things. Again, my question becomes why? And it's not until I think we get into the words that he's using that we discover really what he's doing in this psalm. I don't believe that each eight verses 
contains a particular message that you can lift out of the psalm and say, these eight are telling us this and these eight are telling us that. I think he's using these same words over and over and over again in the psalm to communicate a message that is extremely powerful. And it's out of these frequently occurring words that we discover meaning. Now the interesting part to me is that there are really seven words that he is going to use over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, these seven words appear in at least 21 of the 22 stanzas that we have. In every one, they almost every eight verse grouping contains all seven of these words. And I'm not one that believes in synonyms. Now, that makes me, you know, somewhat... Uh, you could argue with me about that, and that's fine. Um, what I've discovered in my own personal study is that when you dig into the meaning of these words, you find nuances of difference that I think the Holy Spirit chose specifically. He could have used the same word. He could have used law 800 times in this. Why didn't he? Well, because nobody wants to read law, 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 right? (laughs) Well, I don't think that's why he uses different words. And it's in these words, the specifics of these words, that we find great meaning. The first word and the most frequently occurring word in the psalm is the word word in English. It's actually two Hebrew words, and I'm not going to spend much time trying to pronounce Hebrew words. I do that very poorly uh, as it is, but in this particular case, I'm going to need to. The first one is debar. Debar is probably the most common word for word uh, that we see. It's used 24 times in, in the psalm. 21 of these 24 uses, he assigns the pronoun your. It's your word. I think there's so much going on just with that idea, isn't there? He, he's showing possession of who this word belongs to. It belongs to God. It is your word that I'm seeking. It's your message that I'm seeking. It's not my message. And so often I think we approach Scripture with our own message in mind. We go to kind of confirm what we already believe about things. We, the message originates with us. And sometimes even in our preaching, the message originates with us if we're not careful, doesn't it? We kind of come up with what is my central idea and what are my three points and how do I want to say this? And then what verses can I use to support what I want to say? And I would argue to the preachers in the room, brothers, it's backwards. God has a message. We need to seek His message and preach that rather than having it start with us. And the psalmist here is continually reminding himself and his readers that this is your word that I'm seeking. The word debar really comes to mean this sum of what is spoken. It's a divine communication in the form of commandments and prophecies and words of help to His people. And really that idea of a word of help is how the writer is using this particular word to bar. We see throughout the message 
that he's, he sees God's word as a helpmate, a, a guide to his life. In verse 9, in the struggles of temptation and sin, he's going to ask the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? And the answer is given by keeping it according to your word, your debar, your word of help. How are we going to remain pure in the face of all this temptation and struggle? We're going to let God help us, aren't we? We're going to seek His guidance in those things. In verse 28, in times of grief, he says, My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word of help. He uses Debar. In verse 105, he's in need of guidance. He says, Your word of help is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In affliction, in verse 107, he says, I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word of help. You're going to help me out of this slump that I'm in. You're going to help me out of this affliction. In verse 169, in need of comfort, he says, Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word of help. The psalmist here does not see God's writings as a collection of commandments and statutes and legal wranglings to be observed and checked off and and dealt with as as a body of legislation. He sees it as help. He sees it as guidance. He sees it as direction that the Lord wants to provide to guide His steps. And it's such a powerful thought when we think about it. Do we think of God's Word that way? Do we approach God's Word looking for help from God for whatever we're dealing with? The struggles of life, and we all have them. And I would argue there's times where we don't know how to get out of the messes we've created. We don't know how to get out of the slumps that we find ourselves in. We don't know how in our own reasoning and logic to move forward in a direction that is right with God. And yet He's given us His word of help to do that, hasn't He? Do we go to it? Do we seek that help from God or do we always seek the help from ourselves? The second word that is translated word in the psalm is the word imrah. It's a poetic form of the word. It's only used here in Psalm 119. Well, I should say it's used more here than anywhere else, 19 times. It always has the pronoun your connected with it. And if you use New American Standard or some of the other translations, you'll have a footnote. It's almost always can be translated as promise. And that's really what Imra comes to mean is this reliable word. This word of promise that God has made. We see that in in things like verse 11 that says, I have treasured your word of promise in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, I don't want to sin against God because He's made a promise to save me, hasn't He? He's made a promise to reward me if I keep His covenant. He's told me what that promise is and I know He's going to faithfully keep His end. So I need to be mindful of my end and treasure that promise in my heart so that I don't break the covenant and lose the reward that God's given me. It's not a, it's not a keeping of law. It's not a, I have to do this or God's going to punish me. It's simply He's made a promise that I know He's going to keep and I don't want to lose the promise. 
So I treasure His word of promise. Verse 170 says, Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word of promise. God has promised to deliver us and He will if we let Him. And the psalmist understands that. He wants to appeal to God for deliverance and he knows that God will deliver him. So first you have this idea of God's word and we see these two uses. And that's 43 times in the book that he uses this word word. But then there are six additional words that he uses kind of as synonyms to describe God's word. He uses the word law 25 times. He uses the word ordinances or judgments 23 times. He uses the word testimonies 23 times. He uses commandments 22 times. Are you seeing a pattern here? I mean, they're almost all used equally throughout the whole psalm. He uses the word statutes 21 times. He uses the word precepts 21 times. And as I mentioned earlier, most of these words appear in every stanza of this psalm. In each of the 22 groupings of eight verses, he uses every one of these words most of the time. So what is he doing? Is he just trying to create variety? I don't think so. He begins by using the word law. It's the word Torah that you're familiar with. And it comes from the word in Hebrew that means to teach or instruct. God's law is a group of instructions. It's a body of teachings designed to instruct us. Now, we don't think of that when we think of law, do we? We think of restrictions. We think of limitations. We think of these binding things that that don't allow us to do things. But the word literally means to teach or instruct. And the psalmist understands that God is using his word to teach him. He is the student and God becomes the instructor. And he says that God's law is something to be walked in. Verse 1, as a matter of fact, he begins the psalm with the idea of how blessed is the man who is blameless, who walks in the law of the Lord, who walks in the instruction, right? The teachings of the Lord. You see so much of an echo to the first psalm. Uh, and I, Donnie did, did Psalm 1 the other day, did such a great job with it. But there's so many echoes in this psalm back to Psalm 1, this idea of the man that is blessed, who walks according to the law of the Lord. We see in verse 18, he says, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your instruction, from your law. He sees it as something to be observed. Verse 34, he sees God's law as something to be kept. Verse 55, why? Because it provides instruction and direction, he loves it. He's, he's found a passion for it because he doesn't have to guess. Now, gentlemen, we hate instruction books, don't we? <laughs> we get something from Ikea and we look at it and we go, nah, well, not from Ikea because then you'll never get it put together. But we don't like instructions, right? We don't like to be told. We can figure it out on our own. Isn't that how we approach life? I'm going to figure this out by myself. No, this psalmist loves God's word because he doesn't have to guess. God's told him, he's given him the instructions. He's told him what to do. He's given him the details. How cool is that? Imagine getting that Ikea bookshelf with no instruction book. 
how frustrated are you going to be after 20 minutes trying to find tab A going into slot J? And You're going to get pretty frustrated. Well, wouldn't life be pretty frustrating if we didn't know what God wanted us to do? We didn't have the instructions that He wants to give us? We uh, today are not under the law of Moses. And I, I read some things that said this psalm really has no relevance to us today because we're not under the law of Moses. And this man came to love the law of Moses. And I don't think that's what he's talking about at all. We are under law. We're under the law of Christ. Galatians 6 verse 2. Peter describes the New Testament as the commandment of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 2. We're under the same commandments and law. Not the same specific ones, but the same commandment and law from God as the Old Testament people were. Do we love the instructions? How much are we pushing back against them? The second word that he uses is ordinances and judgments. And I know I'm going really fast, but I see the clock ticking. And it's like, if I can get through this, it will be proof that the age of miracles hasn't ceased. Right? <laughs> ordinances and judgments is the other word that he uses frequently throughout the text. And this word means a legal decision or judgment, a binding decision. It's out of this that the psalmist comes to know God as judge of his life. He has passed legal decisions. He has judged mankind and his behavior. This was a word that was used talking about the casting of lots by the high priest in Numbers chapter 27 when they sought a judgment from the Lord. They would cast lots and whatever that lot, lot determined was considered a judgment or ordinance. This, this Hebrew word God's ornaments, ornaments, it's not Christmas time. I, I got to slow down. His ordinances and judgments are righteous. He's going to say that seven times throughout the text. The first one in verse 7. His, his ordinances and judgments are good. Verse 39, they're upright. Verse 137, they're everlasting. Verse 160, they should be feared. 120, they are all a source of help. Verse 175, he seeks to be taught by them. Verse 102, he seeks to remember them. Verse 52, he seeks to speak them to others. Verse 13, he seeks to never turn aside from them. Verse 102, and in them he is revived, verse 149, and he is comforted, verse 52. It's easy to understand how we, when we look to the judgments of God, that we can recognize that he always makes the right decision, doesn't he? His judgments really are righteous. But what does it say when we look at Scripture and we say, I know what that says, but don't think I agree. Aren't we challenging the righteousness of God's decisions? <laughs> Aren't we challenging the rightness of God, the goodness of His, the uprightness of His judgments, the everlasting nature of those judgments? Haven't we placed ourselves in the position of judge? I find it interesting that James says, there's only one lawgiver and judge, and I always add, and you ain't him. <laughs> right? That's James's point. He doesn't use those words, but he's, he's talking about there's only one lawgiver and judge, and that's God, and His judgments are righteous. 
Do we recognize that and we do we go to him for righteous judgment or do we look for loopholes that we think we have found in his judgments and live in the in the shadows, live in the gray areas, live in those areas that we think we know better. Those can be very dangerous places for us to to live and examine. And the psalmist here understands that and seeks to understand and learn from his judgments. The next word is testimonies. Testimonies is interesting. It's actually a word that that means to a, a reminder or a warning. And I thought, those are two really strange things. But when you think about it, reminders are good warnings, aren't they? When we look at God's testimonies, first of all, it comes from the idea to bear witness, and God bears witness of Himself and His purpose to mankind. How cool is it that the God of creation sought to reveal Himself to us? He did that through His testimonies. He's borne witness of Himself in Scripture. And in that Scripture, we are reminded of His nature, His authority, His power, his right to be judge, right? His, his right to give law, the accuracy of his teaching. And as a result, don't those become warnings? Because we've seen what happens when man has violated his law, haven't we? We've seen what has happened when people reject his teachings. We've seen what, have ha- what has happened throughout Scripture when people reject his authority. I think of in Exodus chapter 25 and 26 and 30, the Ark of the Covenant is called the Ark of Testimony. Well, what does it testify to? Think of what's in it. What's one of the main things that's in it? His law, the book that Moses has written, right? And and so it's a reminder of his authority to give law. But isn't it a warning also to treat him as holy? What happened to poor Uzzah? (laughs) He didn't treat him as holy. Now, a lot of people had touched that ark. I mean, I don't think it's just because he touched the ark. A lot of other people had touched the ark. But that rejection of his holiness, Uzzah knew the, knew the deal. He, know, he knew what God said to his people. And when he violated that, he was punished. It. God's testimony has become a warning to us. Do we heed the warnings? How often, gentlemen, do we see the sign, don't cross this fence as we're climbing over the fence? Don't we? I know what that says, but I'll be okay. I don't know that we will. Certainly not when we stand before God. The psalmist clings to these reminders and warnings. Verse 14, because God has given them in righteousness and faithfulness. Verse 138, he finds delight in the reminders and warnings. Do we like to be reminded... Spouses, doesn't it irritate you sometimes when your spouse reminds you of something that you, let's face it, you forgot. You just don't want to let them know you forgot. And they remind you and you're like, I know, I know. Wow, I'm glad you said something. Right? Because I had completely forgotten. Is that the way we deal with God? I know, I know. Are we living like we know? Are we heeding the warnings? Are we looking to His reminders to guide us? Scripture is God's revealing of Himself to us. 
His plan, His purpose, His warning. What a glorious gift. Shouldn't we rejoice in the fact that He has given us these warnings? That He's told us not to go there. That's going to hurt us. What to stay away from in life. Think of all of the pain and suffering. We would save ourselves if we just heeded the warnings. And when does our life become such a mess? When we forget the warnings. When we don't follow His reminders. And when we do what we want. And this man who has written Psalm 119 gets that and he's like, I, am, I love your warnings. Because I understand the protection that they provide every day of my life. The next word that he uses is the word commandment. And we're used to that from the Ten Commandments. But this word literally expresses a specific or particular condition of a covenant. The commandments describe this covenant relationship that we have with God. In Jeremiah 32 verse 11, it talks about the terms of a contract using this Hebrew word that is translated commandment. It's about this relationship with God. And I need to tell you that while we have a covenant agreement with God, it's not one that we got to negotiate, is it? I mean, it is a one-way, non-negotiable contract that God commit, committed Himself to, but He's also committed us to the, us if we want to have a relationship with Him. He has said, if you want to be my people, this is what you're going to have to do. We saw a covenant that he made with Noah when he saved him from the flood in Genesis 6. We saw a covenant made with Abraham and and promised to multiply him exceedingly in Genesis chapter 17. We saw a covenant with Israel and he expected them to keep it in Exodus 34. We see Jesus establishing a new covenant in his blood with us, don't we? God has always used covenants covenants to deal with mankind and he did in the old testament and this word is a description that the psalmist is using to say i understand and love your commandments because they help me to not be ashamed verse six in keeping them i'm not going to break this agreement I want the relationship with you and you've told me what those conditions are and I don't want to be ashamed by breaking those commitments. He says that he knows that they help him to know when he's wandering off. I love this. In verse 10 and verse 21, he talks about this idea that the commandments help keep him from wandering off. Man, how many of us need that kind of guidance? Don't we wander off all the time? I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to wander in my mind in a variety of ways. And God's commandments help keep us back on track. He gives us wisdom, verse 98, through His commandments. Their truth, verse 151. They're faithful again, He uses that concept in verse 86. And when learned, they provide wisdom and understanding, verse 73. But we don't like it because it begins with the word command. (laughs) He's telling us what to do. Once again, I just don't like being told what to do. That's not the response of this psalmist. This psalmist says, tell me. Remind me. Help me learn. I want to know. Because it's in that that his relationship with God remains secure. Verse 47 says, I shall delight in your commandments which I love. Why? Because in them we have our relationship with God. 
And the last word is the word statutes. And statutes is a, an interesting word. It's similar to ordinances and judgments, but it's a binding legislation given by a king. This isn't just binding legislation from a judge. This is about the authority of God as king in his life. Decrees given to Moses were described by this word statute in Exodus 15 and in Numbers 30. And as a recognition of the rule and authority of the king, the psalmist sees himself as subject. Teach me your statutes that I might keep them. Right? If we're going to subject ourselves to a king, we have to be subject. <laughs> and a subject doesn't say, hey, king, I know what you said, but I'm not sure I'm buying that. I don't think we understand kingship in our culture today. I've come to believe that I think, you know, the, the book of Esther is sometimes described as, there's an argument about whether it should even be in Scripture because it doesn't talk about God. and, and I, it, it, There's some, some issues. But I think one of the reasons Esther is in our, our book is to remind us of the absolute power of a king. Mordecai goes to Esther and says, I want you to go to the king and plead for your people. And she says, if I even go in there without permission, he has authority to kill me. Just by showing up unannounced. Do we understand that that's the authority of king? We sing songs all the time. Jesus is Lord. He's our king. Do we understand that kind of authority in a king? You know, we think of president. And we say anything we want about our presidents. And we have the right to do that in this country. I get that. But a king was different. And he's talking about this, this absolute rule of a king using the word statutes. He uses the word precepts, which again is instructions. But it's specific instructions about how God wants things to be ordered. He talks about the idea that it, it, this is a word that's only found in the Psalms. His contrast with this word is that anything that's found in conflict with God's commands and His laws and His commandments is seen as a false way. And it's hated by this psalmist. You look at 104 and 128. It's what tells us what's true and what's false. God's word can do that for us if we allow it to. He defines what's evil. He defines what's good. But the last two words outside of this idea of the, the commandments and the laws of God that the psalmist uses the most is the your servant. He uses the phrase your servant 14 times and he uses the word heart 14 times. You see, once we go to God's word and we see who God is, that's what he's saying is it's in your word and your law and your precepts and your commands. I have come to know who you are. I know you now as helper and guide for my life. I know you as faithful promise keeper. I know you as instructor and teacher. I know you as the righteous judge. I know you as a witness and a watchman. I know you as a covenant maker. I know you as ruler and king of my life. I look to you to put all things in my life in order. And when we go to God's word and we see that picture of God, how do we see ourselves? There's only one way to describe ourselves at that point, and that's your servant. Because we have no authority to rule. If he is all of those things, and I would argue that he is, and the psalmist certainly teaches us that he is, then we have no choice but to see ourselves as servant. 
I think he's talking about a verse from the New Testament. James, and you knew I was going to go to James. So <laughs> In James chapter 1, he says that when we look into God's Word, we see our natural face in the mirror. What does he mean? The face of our birth. You know, when we look into God's Word, we see ourselves exactly the way we are. No pretenses, no masks. You know, I can put on the nice suit. I can wear the tie. I can stand up here. I can come to church every Sunday and I can put on the performance of being a Christian. But you know what? When I stand before God in His Word, I see myself for exactly what I am. You can't be a hypocrite in front of God's Word. You can't. He's going to show you exactly who you are. And this psalmist has seen himself in the face of Scripture and has recognized that his only choice is to serve God. And if you're going to do that, it takes a change of heart. He uses the word heart 14 times. I've already mentioned it in verse 11. I have treasured your word of help in my heart. And the heart is the very inner being of who we are. I have treasured your word of help in my very inner being that I might not sin against you. That's what he's talking about. It is with all of my heart, all of my inner being that he seeks for God and his favor. Verse 10, verse 58. God's testimonies, his witness of of himself is a joy to this man's inner being. Verse 111. It touches him at his very core. And I, he has inclined his heart, his very being, to perform God's statutes. Verse 112. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to have a relationship with God, it takes a transformation of heart. Not just knowledge. We can't just go to Scripture and look at it as, as a collection of commandments and laws and restrictions. Because and, if we do, we're going to bristle up against it. <laughs> we're going to fight back against it. We don't like that control. We don't like that command. But if we will look to see our natural face, God can lead us, can't He? He can guide us. He can instruct us. He can help us. He can get us through. Peter said, everything pertaining to life and godliness comes through a true knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, and that is only found in Scripture. You cannot come to know Him outside of His Word. Yes, the the creation testifies to His deity, but if you want the specifics of who He is, you have to go to His Word. That's what He revealed it to us for. I'll close with a verse that Jesus used. He's actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. It's found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. And he says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Not every concept, not every topic, every word. And we see this psalmist pouring himself over every word that God has given him because in it he comes to know God. In it he sees Himself and his relationship with God, and in it he finds his life. And brothers and sisters, if we'll go to the text and do the same thing, we can have the same joy and pleasure that this man had, knowing God and knowing our relationship with him and trusting in that and loving him for his revelation to us. And I hope that's how you approach your text as you study God's word. Thanks for your time.